How's it going, guys? I'm Zeke. And I'm Jay. And you're listening to the Cinema Sideshow Podcast, episode 43. Woohoo! 43! It's that, like, uh, you're trying to find, like, a new sound every week. I'm trying to... Yeah, I was just thinking... I was like, surely 43... Or am I forget of 42? It's like the, the, the universal number. Yes. That's Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxies. Right. 42. Right. Yeah. So we're the one after that, then. We are. You know, it was a trivia yeah. question the other night oh, yeah. about uh, the sequel... To Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. There's a sequel. Oh. And do you know what the title for it is? What is the title, Zeke? I think it is The Restaurant at the End of the Universe. Hmm. I'll buy it. Yeah. This episode of the podcast is sponsored by Trivial Pursuit. <laughs> no, kidding. Um, how are you, Jake? Um, I'm pretty good. This has been, I, I've been thinking about this. Because okay. we've been up to a lot in the last week. Yep. Busy week. And I thought, I was like, what's the last episode we did? I'm like, The Silence of the Lambs. I'm like, holy crap, that feels like a month ago we did that. Yeah, it does feel like Yonkies ago. It feels like a long time ago, but we... Uh, was that really the last episode? That was <laughs> that was 42. What? Yeah, right? It feels like so long ago. It's been a busy well, we, we did our exam. We did. Our, our one exam. Our one exam. In the past like two and a half years. And then uh, pretty much on our final stretch here. Yeah, we just... Basically, we're just going to deliver the films, and then we're done. Yeah. Well, you, you still have an audio assignment? Yeah, but it's, like, almost done. Yeah, okay, cool. That's, so, that's cool. Basically, the films, that's it. Yeah, and that's exciting. We're Don't unemployed. I'm... Yay! <laughs> unemployed. Yeah, we're going to lose the jobs we already have. <laughs> yeah, it's true. We suddenly become like, no. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I'm pretty good, but, yeah, it's crazy to think that that was 42. That was, oh, my goodness. Weird. I guess, I guess we would have recorded that on the Sunday. We are recording this one on a Monday. So, I guess it's technically been eight days. I guess. But still, that that's a long eight days. It was a long eight days. Wow, it's crazy. But no, I've been good. It was it was a fun weekend. Yeah, uh, bit of celebration. There was there was a bit of celebration post exam. Uh, you and I attended uh, the Little Creatures Beer Fest. Ooh. Um, yeah. Down here in Perth, it's a it's a national brewery sort of event for I beer. Was, and yeah, stuff. I was surprised by the breadth and depth of it all. It was a lot um, of fun. I was like, this is really cool. Yeah, we tried like every different color of beer. <laughs> tried the blue beer, the blue beer, and it was blue, <laughs> like really blue. That um, no, was a fun day. Mm. Uh, it's probably up there with my favorite days out, definitely. Yeah, you would repeatedly. I didn't think you were that drunk, but you would keep coming up to me, being like, "I'm so drunk, Jake," and then followed by, "This is the best day of my life." <laughs> <laughs> Several times throughout, which I really appreciated. Yeah, it was a lot of fun. Well, it felt good because it was like. Even though we still have like a couple of little things to tick off, that was the culmination of our entire course. Really, was that day completely yeah. finishing that exam, like first thing in the morning, just going straight to straight to this beer fest, and it was the two of us. You know, yeah. we did it. We survived. We did. We somehow crawled our way through. Yeah, but we got there. But no, yeah. yeah. And after that, obviously, we went and saw, uh, which we'll talk about a bit later in the show, our mm. film of the week. Um, That's exciting. Yeah, it was just a bit of a fun weekend. But during the week, yeah, caught a few things. Yes, so. what did you catch, Ezekiel? Uh, I caught Sleepless in <laughs> Seattle for the first time. That's right, yeah. Which is a strange film to catch because it was sort of just on a whim that I uh, decided to watch it. I was just looking through the, my DVDs, saw mm. it there, easy 100 minutes. So I was like, sure, give this a watch. Yeah. And... Um, uh, I think I talked about last week on the show, or at least I've you know I've talked about um, off show uh, about my opinions on Tom Hanks 
and oh, how I think that, uh, yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah, how he doesn't seem to have uh, a villain role, and mm. once again in Sleepless in Seattle, he plays a, a love a character that is plagued with tragedy, but is loved by all the women. So, All of the women. So, it's a nice, like, I like the 80s <laughs> romance films. I think, like, they're just sharper and funner. Right, yeah. Um, their modern day ones have a lot of sex jokes in them, and I don't think... Ha, ha, ha. Yeah. Lazy written humor. Train wrecked. No. Big Sick's good. Big Sick. Oh, okay. Um, heard, but that's more because... You talk, you talk about, um, is it Game Night? You talk about that a lot. Yeah, but I would say it's a rom-com. That's just a comedy. Oh, okay, fair That enough. has romance elements in it, but... Right. No, yeah, you're talking you specifically a watch, romantic comedy. Yeah, okay. Yeah, specifically a romantic comedy, which would be probably The Big Sick would fall in. Right. Uh, train wrecked would. I think the most cleverly written and directed one I've seen recently was Disconnected. Oh, that's funny. <laughs> no. Pump your own tires. <laughs> uh, I mean, I'm, I mean that kind of that kind of is the category or the, the genre. It is. I never I really thought so. about genre, but I guess that, that's the best fit. Yeah, rom com. Yeah, people laughed when they watched. <laughs> people laughed when they watch it. <laughs> what about you, Jake? What did you catch this week? We can actually talk about this. Well, you know, you say that, but disconnected probably come up in the next part of our show. It will, yeah, will a little bit later. Um, yeah. so I talked a bit about uh, atypical last week. I, w- I started watching season three, and I said I have a bit of a bit of an up and down history with the show. Yes, and then I was quite very very anti season one and season two. I was like, okay, okay, I feel like they're trying to you know, fix some of the issues that they had with that. By this third season, once I started, because I watched the first two last week, and I said, like, oh, I wasn't really sure how I was feeling yet. I'll get through it. I binged the rest of the season over the next day or two. And I was like, wow. Like, this g- genuinely blew me away. I was like, wow, wow, this has gotten really, really good. Just in terms of the, the first off, all the characters, like, obviously, you know all the characters by now, but it just, it was so easy to binge. Mm-hmm. And, like, you got to give credit to a show where it's, like, it's just so easily watchable. Like, I'm not mm-hmm. sitting here counting the clock or doing this. I'm like, I generally want more of this. And this is the first time I've honestly left the season being like, I can't wait for the next season of Atypical. And I was like, damn, I'm really liking what they're doing with the characters, some of the interesting mix and matches of uh, some of the arcs that they're going through. A bit more accurate depiction? I, I would say so. I think one, well, one of my big issues with season one is you have this 18-year-old character of autism and... You have just tons of like girls throwing themselves at him, and because of his atypicalness, he scares them all away. And then my issue was, well, why are these girls all like randomly attracted to him? Mm. That makes no sense to me whatsoever. And I think that's the thing they dialed down on. Finally, everything makes a bit more sense. He's got a long-time girlfriend, but that relationship makes sense. And you know, he's going through college now as a big part of season three. But it's a very accurate depiction of like. People find it kind of quirky and funny, but that's, mm-hmm. you know, the college lifestyle. He has tutors who are very hard on him, but, like, just the right amount of hard, mm-hmm. where they're, they're sort of a dick to him, but just enough where they know that it's kind of for his benefit, and he's actually going to learn stuff in class. It was just a lot of little clever things like that. Yeah. And then, on the flip side, you have the girlfriend who was a very preppy, sort of, uh, she would do all the extracurricular activities in high school. And this season, actually show her sort of falling apart. She reverts back to a really shitty job. She drops out of college, like, immediately. She's the social, anti-social kind of the person that would make fun of. And I was like, I just really appreciate some of the the, the very cleverly done inner looping mm. with some of that stuff. And then, obviously, there's a the sister character has this whole sort of coming out by arc, which I thought was very nicely done. It was just a, felt like the writers finally figured out what they were talking about. Okay. Felt like they stopped talking out of their ass for a minute. I was about to say, I'm glad, I'm glad to see that uh, 
that show is you know, more appropriate now because yeah, it definitely yeah. seemed to be where you were drawing a lot of your issues with the show. I think so. I think I, I still have issues with where they decided to start. I think they should have started the show of him way younger than 18. He mm-hmm. should have been like maybe 12 because then you get more room for him to grow and grow and grow. But it looks like they've done pretty well with what they've been, the hand that they're dealt with sort of thing. Mm-hmm. So it's like, okay, we see. I think he's still 18. Like, I think the show doesn't really, it's not like year by year. Yeah. So it's more like Breaking Bad where like a year takes place over like four or five seasons. But within that span of time, I think they've actually done a pretty good job at the way that the characters grow and the way that uh, stuff is treated, essentially. Mm-hmm. But yeah, and some honestly really like emotional and very impactfully done scenes, like in terms of the editing, the way certain shows cut to credits. And I was like, oh, shit, that was awesome. That was yeah. really clever. So I was I was genuinely surprised by that. So yeah, that was exciting. Have you caught anything else in the past week? I did. I, um, so you submitted a video by Nitpicks to our group chat. Ah, uh, okay. Um, about Toy d- Story Four. About Toy Story Four. And I watched the video, and it was a very entertaining video, and led me to watching a lot of the Nitpicks videos mm-hmm. following. But um, obviously, I wanted to revisit Toy Story Four. Uh, I know episode 20, 23, I think 20 I think it's 23. Yeah, um, let me double check on that, but I think It was right. our film of the week, and we spoke relatively positive about it. But there was a, a definitely a lingering essence in that podcast of 23 us, is correct. Um, not sure quite why we liked it as much, and I feel like nitpicks addressed why... The film's still got a relatively positive reception. The animation is by far the best we've mm. seen from oh, it's Pixar. Gorgeous. Yeah. Um, as well as obviously the ending and spoilers. I don't know how well, we talked about spoilers on episode twenty-three, and I'll definitely talk about it now. You know, Woody leaves at the end of the film, huh. um, and I think that um, that does emotionally tweak at the heartstrings of us. And nitpicks addresses this. By saying, well, if you're in your 20s, chances are you grew up with these films, which is mm. fair. I remember watching one and two as a child, uh, you know, switch going into teenagehood for Pre-teens, three. Pre-teens, yeah, for your third one, yeah. Yeah, and then obviously now as, a, as an adult watching four. And re-watching it a second time, boy, I, I think I gave it an eight, eight out of ten or a 7.75. It was, it was pretty high, highly graded, but mm. I can't say I can give it that this time around because it was... A completely alternating experience when you sort of get pointed out as to why you like this film is mm. totally off the back of the films that came before it. Yeah, um, I could I could see what you mean. Um, and the same thing, I, I I then he then addresses Finding Dory, so I went on to watch Finding Dory. Oh again. no! <laughs> and you're going into the Pixar sequel nightmare. And. And Incredibles too. These all three mm. of them, they all have the same problem. And They're all sort of. Mm. This leads to me asking: Have you seen the trailer for Soul? No, I still haven't seen it yet. Because but I'm I'm excited because it is an original IP as opposed mm-hmm. to the sequels you just mentioned. It is by Pete Doctor who did Up, which is my favorite Pixar film. Mm-hmm. Um, but having not seen the trailer, I don't really know anything about it. So we yeah, shall I don't see. Like Inside Out, and he also did Inside Out. Okay, fair enough. And Coco. I haven't seen Coco yet. Um, I haven't seen Coco, but I have seen Inside Out, and I did not like Inside Out. It was like, I and I love Up. <laughs> I'll give you Up. Up is great. You'll give me Up. But, yeah. I'm never going to give you Up. <laughs> I went I went into a real Pixar sort of spree um, 
and I'll probably keep going because some of these ones I really would like to revisit with a more critical eye mm. rather than an enjoying eye. I'd really like to revisit The Incredibles. I don't think I've watched it for at least five or the six years. The first one's still, like, incredible. Yeah. Ah, yeah. I didn't even do that on purpose. Um, perhaps maybe a retro Pixar episode might be in order because mm. we haven't ever had something like that, but or maybe. a retro animation episode. I don't think we've done any other Toy Story films on the show. No. Oh, sorry, uh, any other Pixar films? No. Bar Toy Story 4. But, uh, yep, that's pretty much what I, like, that essay led to me going back to a few uh, of these films. So I, I kind of put you in that <laughs> interesting pathway, if you will. Yeah, I mean, it's it's really true. I mean, yeah. but, the, I mean, that essay also ad- addressed the fact that a lot of these sequels they didn't want to make, and they've been kind of mm-hmm. coerced into making them out of, like, their Did acquisition Did they want to make Toy Disney. Story 4? Not really. Uh-huh. No, can't imagine so. Imagine that there's... It's uh, very unnecessary. Well, I mean, it comes back to, like, introducing the new toy characters and then, like, just the money they make off, like... Right, yeah, All yeah, yeah. the product style, but... Well, it's, it's funny, because, like, if you go back to that episode 25... I want to re-listen, because I, I don't remember how critical I was. I Most of the stuff they touched in that essay, and that's why I sent it, was because it's like, I remember touching on these things when I initially watched it. The only one was Forky... I mean, the, I think the nitpicks was anti-Forky. And I was a bit like, yeah, I liked Forky. He was fine. I didn't have an issue with it. But, like, all the other stuff, the ending is... I never I never learned to accept that ending, ever. You know, and you go back to the podcast, I'm pretty sure I'm sitting there being yeah. like, I don't know about that ending, guys. I don't know. Um, and the Buzz stuff we talked about, how Buzz is, like, yeah, we did immensely that. dumped down. Yeah, it's just like... Yeah, we did address that. I remember that. Yeah. So, it was good to see that we were kind of And we addressed the bow stuff. I think the bow stuff was... Oh, uh, yeah. I think we gave Bo a bit more of a pass than, we I, did. than I recall. Um, I mean, I think our inner monologue probably was speaking more to that. It comes back to the bravery of speech. Well, I think it was interesting because, like, I remember on the podcast we talked about how they sold the fact that Bo was a changed character because of the time in between. But then the net, the nitpicks video mm-hmm. specifically talks about how that isn't earned because she's a changed character in the flashback as well. Yes. And I was like, damn, that's a good point. That's yeah. a real good point. That's that's the best part about those video essays and stuff. I really like them because it's, yeah. it's someone who's particularly like him or I've, I've seen other ones. Um, they really take the time to make their point mm. apparent. And I think they're, they're really like helpful. 25 minutes or something in that video. Yeah. yeah. And they're really helpful to get that sort of insight on it, especially something like Toy Story 4, which... You know, even upon release was relatively divisive, but for most part, most people couldn't really figure out why it was so divisive. Right, so, yeah. Um, oh, well. <laughs> yeah. All right, it, back to you, it, Jake. Though. Yeah. What else no, you... it doesn't stick out really well. Going think... back on retro um, lane there. Yeah, just a little bit. Um, so I watched, I watched a few other things. I'll start with the two that I actually found to be very similarly problematic. Okay. The two that I watched was Burn After Reading and The Men Who Stare at Goats. Oh. I actually realized, I sat down and watched both of these, and I was like, they're okay. And then I digested on both. And I watched these on separate days, but within the last week. And I realized they both have very similar issues. The point was like, man, these really don't... These ma- these movies are about nothing, really. Yeah. You know? And that was the thing. I sat both through... Both got George Clooney in them. Yeah, they do. It was a bit of a George Clooney kind of marathon I was going through there. Yeah. It was interesting because I saw I saw the many stereotypes in the store and I was like, I feel like I've heard of this, but I haven't. I don't know. So I grabbed that watch and it's, it's got a great cast. It's got Ian McGregor in it as well. Kevin Spacey's in it. Jeff you know, Bridges is in it. Jeff Bridges is in it. You're right. And he kind of has like a transformation on screen mm-hmm. from like army head to, to like the, the hippie 
of the group, if you will, which that was the interesting thing. And both these films do it. They put these high, you know, re- highly regarded actors like Brad Pitt's in Burn After Reading, mm-hmm. and they put all these characters in the fun little quirky roles. It's like, oh, it's fun to see them acting silly and doing this. But in service of the overall stories of the film, they just, I don't know, it just didn't yeah, carry it's, over. It's one of those things that, um, I mean, I've always talked about the Coens and it's and they have amazing films. Mm. So when you get told, oh, there's a Coen Brothers film with, you know, Tilda Swinton, Brad Pitt. Right, yeah. Francis uh, McDormand's in Francis, it. Yeah, Francis McDormand, George Clooney. You're yep. like, okay, I'm in. I'm in. I'll yeah. see this. because And it's, John Malkovich. Yeah. <laughs> He's like a big part of it, yeah. And honestly, apart from a few chuckles here and there from just the zany, obnoxious, right, Lebowski-esque yeah. characters, um, there's nothing going on in the film. Mm. And I guess the, the counterpoint could be like, oh, well, in Big Lebowski, nothing's going on. But it's like, I think there is stuff going on. Yeah, I, I would disagree with anyone who argues that. So you're right, the Big Lebowski, there is a lot going on. There's... I don't know how much of a character arc you would give Jeff Bridges, but it almost doesn't matter in that case because you've got this very excellently crafted comedy and the whole mm-hmm. thing of that story spiralling out of control, that's kind of the whole point of that. Yeah. And with Burn After Reading, not only do things spiral out of control, they're way less interesting spirals. Yeah. And on top of that, it ultimately ends horribly anticlimactic. Mm-hmm. Literally, I mean, you told me the other day you didn't even finish the film. Yeah, I didn't get to the end. Yeah, and it literally ends, they bring J.K. Simmons in every now and then to remind us how weak the script is. Yeah. I'm sorry, it's a weak script. And then at the end, he literally comes in, he's like, oh, did we learn anything? No? Okay. Bye. And then it goes to credits. I'm not even joking. I was like, did the film just admit defeat with and this? I, you know? Yeah, I think that's fair. And I actually think, like, the more Cohen brother films I've seen, the more hit or miss they have been. Mm. I've definitely found that, to that. Flip, a co- flip a coin and you either get near masterpiece or like it's either the positive end of the spectrum or nothing happens and it's quite boring and yeah uh, i think the best uh film to make this point is is the ballad of buster scruggs where mm. it's six shorter films just haven't seen um we'll watch it and you and i'll ask you i'll be like out of the six films okay. how many of them did you actually like and if you say three then the point's proven. If you like more gotcha. than three, because I, I think maybe four out of six, maybe they've they've got a better positive record than negative. But there's definitely that when they hit a negative, it's pretty boring. I think stuff. that was you're right because that was part of my acceptance of. It. I was like, wow, I really didn't like this film, and I was like, but it's a Coen Brothers film. How could I dislike? But you're right. It's like if you really see them think about it, it's like. You're allowed to have renowned directors make crap every now and then. Yeah. I'm not calling this from crap. I think I, I ended up giving like a two and a half stars on, on yeah. Letterboxd or something. Because it's, it's, it exists. But for Coen Brothers. It, yeah, it, but it, by it, their standards, I was like, wow, what happened? Yeah. You know, I mean, it goes back to... Dan- and I even compared The Many Stereo Goats to Downsizing, mm-hmm. which is a film that just just tries tries so desperately to You're be referring unique. to and- a film that I may have watched this week. Did you actually watch it? I did. Oh, no! Zeke's Dud of the Week. I should introduce that. I watch one dud film a week. Oh, God. Um, no, but I compared the many stereo ghosts there because that film also, it feels like it's trying too hard to be like, oh, look where we are now. Whoa, fun. Mm. And it's like, no, stop, 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 stop trying. Just stop. But um, yeah, I don't know. But then you, you're right. Alexandra Payne, 
look what can happen from one film to the next with someone like that. Yeah, I was, so, and yeah, you're right. once again, I got to throw it back to nitpicks. Uh, <laughs> it was their video essay that drew me in. Should we just call this episode nitpicks? Yeah. <laughs> no, I think it's good to acknowledge like where yeah, you get no, these ideas from. Absolutely. And um, they had a video essay on why that movie was so terrible. And honestly, for the most part, like when you watch the downsizing trailer, well, they, the essay is titled How They Cheated You, like how they sort of... Ooh, I they, love that title. How I love that title. took the idea of this film and then completely took it away from you, like, right in front of your eyes. I mean, I watched that trailer before I watched the film, right? <laughs> Sorry, the way you just grabbed your wallet then was, like, so dramatic. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I'm emotive I'm with my hands. Yeah, I know. Um, but, uh... Come on. <laughs> I watched the trailer. So the thing was, I watched the yeah. essay and then I watched the trailer because I was okay. like, all right, I want to watch the trailer and see what I'm getting from the trailer. Because yeah. I'm often someone who's very much like, don't watch the trailer. But I remember this got a lot of trailer push. A lot of like... I, I remember the trailer being like, oh, this seems kind of interesting. Yeah, the marketing yeah. for the film honestly was really good. Like <laughs> All things considered, you're right. The marketing was good. I want to emphasize that. Quotation so the marks. department, the department was like, we need to get butt- butts and seats. And... <laughs> I'm pretty sure they did that for at least the first two weeks. Because there's a thing right, that it's like okay. cinemas are obliged to show uh, a film for the first two weeks it's out. They could show yeah, it as yeah, much yeah. as they want, but they have to show it in their cinema. And I think this this is one of those films that just, after the two weeks, it just was like, see ya! It must, yeah, it must have been crap sort of but, um, seats and butts. I'd say they did their job because you watch the trailer, it tells you everything you need to know. There's a relatively strong cast. Matt Damon's in it. There's Christoph small... Waltz is in it. I was about to say Christoph Waltz yeah. is in it. There's a really... I think, it's like, what? Yeah, it's a really strong cast and then they show enough of the little people with big things to be like... Right. Yeah, there's little people with big things. And, and then like, that turned out to be the less weirdest thing in the whole film. Or the least weirdest I'm thing. I'm I, this is what I don't understand, is not, uh, what, 20 weeks ago we were talking about how great Alexander Payne was and how good right, he's writing Nebraska. at, you know, deplorable characters that we sympathise with mm. for some reason. And I've talked about Sideways on the show too and how good that film is and I didn't even realise that they were written by the same dude. Right, okay. Until... After and I was Made like, well, that makes later. sense, and that's why I enjoyed both. Um, I don't know what happened with this film. It feels like he just tried to do too many things, and it's a prime example of someone who's given. Because if you look at the budgets for all these other films, they are not big. They don't exceed right. a couple million mostly. And well, it's interesting you bring that up because I got here. The film had anywhere between sixty-eight to seventy-six million dollar budget. And I think it's the first time he got given. Yeah, that right. kind of money. And the box office uh, was $55 million, so... Yeah. So he probably... And they Lost probably got, Probably got that mostly in the first two weeks, yeah, I would absolutely. say. Yeah, um, absolutely. How racist is that film, by the way? Yeah. <laughs> it's just too, it got too much going on. It's I think so that's insane. its biggest suffering is it's it's got too much going on. It has the most passive protagonist in film history. <laughs> I, I don't know what... Like, and the funny thing is... It's like, you look at Nebraska and you look at, like, Will Forte's character, he always has a goal, and it's like, they don't... And if you watch Nebraska and if you watch uh, Sideways, the goals are very simple, Hmm. but it's what's under the surface of the goal. It's like, 
I mean, at the end of the day, Nebraska is about an old man who's who's trying won the to, lotto. Yeah, he's trying to get his money, and, and then for for Will Forte, it's it's you know getting his father there, but also is he able to find common ground with his father? In yeah, a way? and except the fact that his dad was a pretty shit dad, yeah. and he needs to understand that. And it's been several months since we watched this film. We know that right off the top of my head. Yeah. I don't remember what shit about what Matt Damon wanted in this film. I'm not gonna lie, it like. In that video I saw they showed Gulliver's Travels. I'd rather watch Gulliver's Travels than this film again. <laughs> I'd rather see Jack Black it do ACDC. Like Arthur Rabbit. and the Invisibles <laughs> yeah. towards the end there. It was it was bad. It oh was my it was really bad. Like I can't believe you put yourself through that. I want you, sir. Because you <laughs> saw it and Jack saw it, and I felt like I also had to share in the pain, and boy did I share in the pain. <laughs> it also got just put on Netflix. I don't know why Netflix bought it. Ugh. Poor, poor Netflix. They probably just bought it because people just watched it now out of irony. But it's not even like well, a fun bad film. It's just bad. Yeah, it's painful. It's so painful. What Can- was this film that they got? Was it like that Sherlock and Gnome? Sherlock, I don't know. It was some comedy. Oh, it was a comedy with like Will Ferrell and um, what's his name? And they're like tanked. Oh, and Net- Holmes and Watson. Yeah, that's it. And Netflix wouldn't even buy it. They're like, nope, get that away from us. Yeah, and I find that funny because it's like they bought this and I'm like, what, was it just in the bargain bin Netflix? is like, oh, we need to add another one. Maybe bargain. irony viewing might get enough out of this one. And no, nah, it's not even a fun one to watch. It's confusing. There's no... I feel like Christoph Waltz was probably high the most of the time he was on set. He just looks so chill. He looks like he was on holiday. <laughs> and he just was like, ah, sure, I'll get a paycheck while well, just chat. He's like, oh, my last film with Tarantino, we were in a desert the whole time, so I got to chill out in a nice house with this one. Yeah. But that's, that's, <laughs> in my head, I sort of think, like, for, like, poor, like, Damon was on the promotional team, so, like, he had to promote uh, okay. the film. Yeah. Christoph Waltz didn't. He just he got to say. be there on the few days that said he needed to be, and that was it. Right, fair enough. And it's like, I mean, if I if I slid over a couple mil to you, just to show up and be like, Will you please, yes, I'm indulgent <laughs> and rich, but I'm not a bad guy, and I do smuggling, but I'm not the bad guy for some reason. <laughs> <laughs> that film, man, and like even in like you should do a, a drinking game. <laughs> there was a Paramount that I think Paramount, who funded the film, came out and said, well. He's 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 been nominated for Oscars. The script made no sense, but hey, let's it's got little people in it. Let's make it basically. <laughs> and I mean, I guess if you have as much success as Payne has had with writing, I mean, you you've got the Descendants, which won an Oscar, mm. and then the other like Nebraska getting nominated, nominated sideways got a real yeah. big pump at in indie festivals. He has enough success behind him that if a guy is just like I don't know, this feels like it was his. If this film was done right, I mean, pain could be just thrown into the stratosphere of, like, the next big run of films. But because this film was such a bad one, he's just set right back to the bottom of the pile now. Mm. And I don't think we'll be seeing a recovery from him anytime soon. Uh, I mean, I hope so. I hope he puts something out that's, like, more Nebraska-esque than fucking downsizing. It's small, though. He needs Uh... to downsize his wallet. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> he needs to downsize his creativity. Yeah, exactly. Oh, Back Christ. to you, Jake. Back to me. All right, well, I'm done with the, sh- the shit films. <laughs> Let's get on to slightly better ones. So I finally watched earlier today The Grand Budapest Hotel. Oh, baby. Oh, baby. Um, I thought it was good. I was... It's At this point, I'm used to, to, to Anderson's style. 
you know, and, um, I, yeah, it's, I don't, I don't know how to rank this one. I thought the story was like, it was like, I was interested, I was following, but it, it kind of went, in, kind of went and gone for me. Mm-hmm. So I was like, even though I was like quite positive about the film, I was like, yes, lots of great quotes in here, yeah. lots of great kind of direction going on here. Um, bloody, what's his name? Voldemort. Bloody. Ralph Fiennes. Ralph Fiennes, he's, he's great in it. And I wanted to give a shout out to Tony, is it? Revololi? Uh, oh my god, I'm terrible. For... But um, well, he plays the um, the guy like the sidekick sort of character. Oh, the best boy. Yeah, the best boy, and he's um. I'm, I'm, I'm a... sorry, not best boy. Uh, what do they call him? I'm forgetting. Baggage boy. Yeah, the, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, yeah. he, yeah, yeah. I, I, he, he is a sidekick. Yeah. That is his role. But I, I, I'm glad how much um screen time he turned out to be because I was like, oh, it's the dude from the Spider-Man films who plays a mm. weird um Flash Gordon. And I, I loved how much he had to do in this film. I was like, that's awesome. That's great. Because it's yeah. such a great cast. And to bring someone in quite some fresh. some very funny lines. Like, some of mm. my favorite lines are from Grand Budapest. It's probably not my favorite Wes Anderson. Right. But it definitely has some of my, fun, like, the funniest lines. Like, that line when, like, Adrian Brody's like, what, this faggot? <laughs> <laughs> I think Brody's You spoiled that line for me, though. Oh, it's so... Because you said it too many times. I saw it coming. It comes out of nowhere, though. Oh, man. <laughs> I knew I knew when it was coming, but I was like, this still, it's a great line. It's a very um, funny line. <laughs> oh, man. No, that... It's, it's very well done. It was actually interesting to see how Wes Anderson played with the aspect ratio, because most of the film, when it's in, you know, it's telling a flashback sort of story... Uh, is in three by four, mm-hmm. and I was like, "Well, we all know how he loves to do his, you know, framing and his mise en scenes." So it was interesting to kind of do. You know, we talked about it with the Nightingale and how um, is it Jennifer Kent? Yes. Yeah, how she would position people and block them in the frame because of just that cutoff, you yeah. know, on the left and right. And it was interesting to see how Anderson did that, especially mm-hmm. when it cuts back to the the big nineteen um, bloody what's it called sixteen wait. I think it's like 30, 40, 50s. It's like... No, no, sorry. I'm, I'm talking about the aspect ratio. Oh, like I'm blanking. Like 4 by 3 or the 16 by 9? 16 by 9 is what I'm thinking of. Jesus Christ, I just I had a bloody brain fart this then. That's okay. But it was cool when he cut back to that, which was meant to be the quote-unquote present day, and to, to see again, like, ah, oh, there's there's him in his big wide, so that was cool. Um, so I appreciated the film, but it, it doesn't rank very highly up on the on the Anderson scale, I would say. I think I'm just too used to be star by now that doesn't it doesn't impress me anymore. Which is a shame because it is impressive. It's hard to beat Isle of Dogs. Isle of Dogs is incredible, mm. and and I mean we I mean we've talked about Anderson on the show to death, but mm-hmm. great some great stuff. I finally caught the killing of a sacred deer as well. Have you seen this one? That's the Yorgos Lanthimos one. That is correct. I have not. It is between the lobster and the favorite. Um, it's a very different title right there. Supposed yeah. to do something. Now, the killing of a sacred deer. No, I thought... I, you know what? I was actually kind of in the same... Uh, in, in terms of his filmography, I was actually kind of on the same boat, mm-hmm. where I was like, it's definitely not my favourite. If anything, it might actually be my least favourite of the four that I've seen. Yeah. The three aforementioned, and then Dogtooth, which we did in episode six. Yes. Um, this felt actually like a great spiritual successor to Dogtooth. Because mm-hmm. Jesse made a comment on that on the show. Probably. I would love to go back and listen to what he said, because it totally felt like the continuation of that with Dogtooth. Is about um, kind of the issues of a family that's too enclosed, if you will, mm-hmm. or too protective of each other. The issues that can go on there. While this is more about a family uh, who were faced with a situation they couldn't get out of, mm-hmm. where there had to be a winner. And you had your traditional, yeah, you know, your mother, your father. You know, you had the older sister and the younger boy, who was played by um, 
uh, I'm going to screw up his uh, surname, but it's Sonny Sulik, Sujlik, who is the kid from God of War and mid-90s. So I was like, oh, awesome, he's in this too. Um, but you had that traditional family. There's no weird stuff going on though, right? Uh, definitely not on the level of dog. There's no like incest sort of okay. stuff going on here. It's a bit more, you have your more traditional family there, but now they're all sort of pitted against each other in this situation. Mm-hmm. I won't spoil for you, but it was cool to see them sort of try and up one each other in almost way. Like, oh, who's the favorite sort of thing, which actually mm-hmm. kind of leads into their favorite after that. But no, I thought it was really cool, and I I'm I'm stealing this quote from the the back of the DVD box, but it did feel very Kubrick esque at times, especially some of the hallway tracking shots in the hospital. I'm like, yeah. wow, this really feels like a Kubrick film right now, and the music is perfect. In fact, it's like the the whole first act before anything physically like I don't want to say superstitious, but you know what? Once the the physical creepiness in the film starts to happen, mm-hmm. it's long outpaced by the soundtrack. So the first 30, 40 minutes of this film, the only hint of unease of something going on is the soundtrack just being so disturbing. And I was like, I really like that. And then obviously, as the plot thickens, then you realize what's going on under the layer. Mm-hmm. You're like, wow, this is really cool. And I watched one other uh, similarly disturbing film okay. called Midsummer. Yes, oh, you, you said this in passing to me yesterday, but haven't really delved into what you liked about it. Right. Um, Midsummer is fucking intense. Okay. I love it. It's, What's it's, it about? Um, so basically, it's... And again, it's one of these things where, like, there's spoilers in the first 10 minutes, but I don't want to spoil okay. some of the specifics. But it's basically about this, uh, like, young girl uh, or young adult girl and her boyfriend and his mates. They all go... I think it's, uh, gosh, I'm trying to remember the... I think it's... I, I, I want to say Finland, but it's not Finland. Um, gosh, I'm blanking on this. I hate it's myself like for Norway, it. Sweden. Yeah, it's sort of um, that kind Scandinavian. of... Scandinavian. Yeah, yeah, in a way. Where it's, um, it's very far away from them as, as a bunch of Americans. They stick out in mm-hmm. the world, so to speak. And they go into this sort of uh, cult, if you will, and it's very much this thing that they do every 90 years. It's like this big festival that they hold. And a lot of the guys in there, they're doing it for like a thesis for like their their honors or something for the uni. Mm-hmm. So our the protagonist, the girl uh, Danny, she's pretty much just our gateway into that, where she's dating the guy who's a part of this group of yeah. friends, and she's feeling very outcast from the get go. You know that he wants to break up with her, and he he feels guilty he won't break up with her, but there's this impending, you know, bubbling thing going on between two of them. And then it gets very, very horrific from there when we find out more about what the festival is actually about and what happens there. And, um, oh, it's so good. And some of the, the imagery, some of the, the shots and the soundtrack mm-hmm. and the performances especially are just, like, ridiculously good. Yeah. Like, it just pulls you. And it's like, it's like two and a half hours. Like, it's not a short film, but I was just, like, the whole way through, I was like, yeah, I love all of this. And I think there's, like, a 30-minute-plus uh, more in a director's cut then I'm like, yeah, Jeez. I'll totally buy into that too because I just loved everything about it. So you watched the director's cut? No, I, I don't think I did, but I want to. Okay. Knowing that it's significantly longer, I'm still happy to Because you said it's down. out on Blu-ray. Uh, yeah, yeah. I was surprised. I was like, oh, shit, it's out. And it's funny you mention that because I rented it on DVD and I fucking hated it. The DVD, like the port to DVD, and I watch a lot of DVDs. I usually don't mind the quality of a DVD, mm-hmm. but this DVD in particular was, I don't know what they did to... They poured it over or to convert it. It looked garbage. There's like yeah. there's some amazing visuals in front of me that I can't enjoy because it just looks crap. Mm. The like the way it's converted down. 
felt like I was watching like 480 or something. I was like, this. I mean, I wow. probably I probably was technically speaking, but you know, it just felt real crap. I was like, oh, this is driving me nuts. But I fucking love the movie. And the funny thing I know, it's rated R, and this is the description they have <laughs> on the box, and this is high impact injury detail. That's a very, Ooh. it's a very specific rating that That's I. It's got some, yeah, your bad vibes. <laughs> it's got some squeamish vibes. Oh, uh, just a little bit. And as, as someone who's uh, studied the Australian rating system, that is not a, that is not a common uh, rating that would give someone. It's Australian. Uh, well, not the film, no, but I mean, just mean the oh, rating okay. itself. Cool. The description of the rating they gave was like, I totally want you to watch it, and I'll sit down and watch the director's cut as well because I. Fucking love that movie. Yeah, Might be my favourite this year so far. Wow. Yeah. That's a big... Throwing it out there. That's a big throw right there. <laughs> Watcha! Sweet. No, that's chill. Well, that's all I've watched this week too. Sweet. Well, do we have any career updates we want to talk about? <laughs> Not for me. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, nah, chip away, just... Chipping away and hitched. I am. Yeah. yeah, be done soon. Yeah. That's all but... I got. <laughs> That's fair. Well, you you got a little involved with some of the stuff I did this week. Yeah, yeah. Bit. I mean, we both post exam before we went and got proper, oh, yeah, proper, yeah, yeah. proper drunk. Was uh, we went and uh, filmed some stuff uh, at Cottesloe with your drone. Yeah. So to to set that up um, earlier this week, they the Eco Shark Barrier they actually installed a new um, enclosure, mm-hmm. like one of the shark you know, eco barrier sort of things. Um, and I've worked with them before to record, get some drone shots of like for their website and whatnot. Yeah. And they wanted to actually come out and record them physically installing it this time, which was like a three, four day process mm-hmm. of them doing it. I came out for a couple of days and recorded them like setting it up and dragging it out into the ocean. And they had like boats and stuff all and divers putting it together, which was really cool. And I got some pretty awesome drone footage and, and some ground stuff from a GH4 as well. I got a lot of footage of that. And there was it was the reason I want to talk about it so much is because there was so much media attention here. It was insane. Mm-hmm. Like that Channel Seven coming in, the next day Channel Nine were coming. They all had their own drones and stuff. You know, um, like the mayor of Cottesloe was there. The guy there was this guy from Queensland, and I'm forgetting I'm forgetting the the the, the company if so if that he's from. I want to give him a shout out when I remember. But he came over from Queensland to do a documentary. Uh, and specifically captured this part for the documentary. Oh, okay. And I think we were in talks that I'm actually going to lend them some of my drone footage and for a little cheeky credit. That's pretty sweet. So uh, that's very exciting. But the reason you joined me on the Saturday yes. is because I just needed some pickups of the completed um, enclosure. Mm-hmm. And then I, you saw me, I got a little like, they're climbing over the enclosure. Those yeah. little shits. <laughs> getting, getting attached to your... Uh... Project you're investing in. Yeah, exactly. But um, you got to hang out. Well, we got to sit down for a little while, which was awesome. Yeah, it was pretty chill. Having yeah. a beer and watching you pilot a drone. <laughs> Literally, That's yeah. how my career is going, guys. <laughs> do you want to hold the controller while I do this? I don't know. <laughs> I, was having, I was very happy. Oh, no. Nah, I think that was an awesome day. Yeah. But that, that led right into our beer fest stuff. And also, they haven't put it up yet, but I did do a video for the fan, for the fan base I've mentioned so many times lately. I yep. did a little promo video for them. I don't know when it's going to be out, but that's coming real soon. And also, you can rent Disconnected officially from them now. And someone did. Yeah, someone did. I got a text like the day after they put them up, being like, oh, someone someone rented that DVD. I was like, yes. yes. So um, I'm hoping that she's not messaging me every single time someone's rented it out. 
because that would mean that more than one has rented out in the last two days. <laughs> but, um, <laughs> I mean, I, I would imagine yeah, I'm, uh, you're probably not going to text me every single time. Like, oh, you got to go take it. a photo with them. I do. I think I think on Wednesday I'll be able to go by and get a photo. That's so cool. that'd be cool. That's well, cool. You, you should come with me because I've got, I've got some store credit now, so you should come with me. We should get some... We should some, rent some stuff. Get some indie indie babies. Yeah, baby. I like the sound of that. I like but, the sound um, of that. No, so it's been a pretty... I guess that's part of the reason why it's felt like so long for us since the last episode. Yeah, it's been a long week. We've been working. Yeah. But, full, uh, full time. <laughs> and speaking of work... Uh-oh. Our film of the week. <laughs> Three and a half hours. I was going to say... No you, intermission. You said earlier an easy 100 minutes. So I was like, how about a hard 209 minutes? <laughs> Jake, what are we watching this week? Oh, this week we're watching The Irishman. Frank Sheeran. Is that right? Yeah, you said right. Uh, under the contract, management can only fire a driver on very specific charges. So, you have a show up late? No. Do you have any moving violations? No. Do you drink on the job? No. You ever hit anybody? On a job? Yeah. I don't think so. All right, then. We don't have nothing to worry about. In the 1950s, truck driver Frank Sheeran gets involved with Russell Buffalino and his Pennsylvania crime family. As Sheeran climbs the ranks to become a top hitman, he also goes to work for Jimmy Hoffa, a powerful teamster, tied to organized crime. Whoa, this film man. was directed by Martin Scorsese and had a budget of $140 million U.S. dollars. <laughs> That's and a is lot a Net- of money. Netflix production? Yes, so Netflix fully funded the film. Yes. Uh, which goes into something I want to touch on very quickly, how this film at the moment is being boycotted by a lot of Australian theatres yes. uh, because of its very short run. For those listening mm-hmm. right now, and we're going to be very strict in our spoiler-free slash spoiler-filled sections because I imagine most people listening to this haven't seen the film yet. Yeah. It's not technically out for another four weeks, something like that? Uh, three. Three weeks. Uh, so when it comes to Netflix in three weeks, you guys can watch it. We're going to be very strict on the spoiler-free until the end of the show. Mm-hmm. Um, that being said, most theaters in the country aren't playing it because it's such a short uh, release window. Yeah. Usually they're used to a 90-day uh, kind of run before it comes to DVD. But obviously this is challenging it. Most theaters don't like that. We went to Backlot Perth, who we don't did. give a fuck about that. They want to play the film all week long. So yeah. that's how we got to saw it. Got to give it got to give it to Backlot. It was a very fun experience to watch. Uh, really enjoyed it. Mm, yeah. I would not want to watch this on my computer desk. Oh, yeah. I agree. But, yeah. I mean, I think for the most part... Uh, this film is definitely a cinema experience and to not be a cinema experience uh, will be a bit of a shame because mm. although I do appreciate that Netflix is really trying to push to break into the the sin like the Oscar market right they be like, taken seriously um, cinema is still cinema and you can't create a vibe of cinema at home as much as unless you physically have a theater room mm. which I want one. I mean, we, as soon as I move out, most filmmakers one. do. Yeah. I mean, it's just a pretty normal thing to do. Um, unfortunately, to have a real like theater room, you gotta mm. be rich. And, uh, <laughs> and filmmakers aren't that. Uh, definitely not that. Well, most of them. Um, and I think the, the the biggest disappointment is in a few weeks when this comes out on Netflix, is ninety nine percent of the audience who watch this film are watching it on Netflix, which mm. main means they're watching it on a laptop or a phone. Oh, God, I watched it on the phone. you got to be kidding me. It's yeah. such, a, such a cinematic film. 
Yeah. Like, I love it. I loved it. Like, and it was a very, again, like, what, 50 seats in there? Mm-hmm. It was the perfect size because it, it felt intimate. I, the screen was even bigger than I remembered. I've been to Backlot yeah. a few times, usually yeah. there to, to not watch a film <laughs> for whatever other reason. But I'm like, damn, this, this is a great screen. I forget how good mm. the screen is. So re- release date is the 27th of November. Okay, so, so we're quite early on this. Yeah. Exclusive access. Yeah, like, I mean, obviously we are definitely not delving into spoilers <laughs> on this discussion, I don't think at all. I think I think the last like five, ten minutes we can Maybe. Okay, dabble yeah, into sure. it. Um, basically, this, this film takes place over the course of... Like 20 years? 20 years? I think it's more than that. I read... I don't know how old this quote is. I think this was said before they even shot the film. But I remember Scorsese saying that it was going to take place between the ages of 24 and 80 for De Niro's character of Frank, which is, uh, what, 64 years? That seems a bit of a stretch. I'm sure they narrowed that window down once they started shooting it and what we saw on screen. But that was that was the number that, that uh, Scorsese gave us. Which I thought was a bit insane. Okay, so what, yeah. what I'm reading here, mm. and this is just through a plot synopsis, uh, it starts in the 1950s. Yep. And uh, the film, uh, we obviously are intercutting. Well, actually, the film starts with uh, De Niro in the nursing home. Right. As an 80 year old man. And he's retelling um, his story. And that says it's around 2003. So this guy was a real okay, person. Okay, wow. Um, Frank Sheeran. 2003. So yeah, that makes sense. He passed away in 2003. So that's uh, yeah, yeah, like a sixty-year journey, if it's in the fifties. Yeah, it's a fifty-year journey, two thousand three. So that sort of makes sense. Um, I'm glad they started in the fifties, not the forties, because uh, I don't think De Niro could have passed as a twenty-year-old. Thankfully, now we got to talk about the de-aging. I think that's a I big. F- I thought the de-aging was excellent. Yeah, in this film. This is a really big thing that's been happening um, this year, especially. Feels like the year of like just. Mm. throwing actors all over the spectrum on their age. <laughs> doesn't matter if you're you're 60 or what, however old Chris Evans is, you can throw them at any end of the right, age group. yeah, yeah, yeah. One end or the other. Um, I mean, it's been around for a few years, but I feel like this year has definitely been the year yeah. where it's I, been I like... I mean, the big mainstream one was um, when Rogue One did it. I mean, that was the first big example of... Well, I guess that was a fully created. That wasn't de-aging, was yeah, it? Yeah, no, it wasn't de-aging. What this, am I thinking I think, of? I think... Um, well, I mean... The first time I think I can remember them using it was, was it Civil War, where Downey Jr. has like a twenty-year-old oh, version right, of you're him. Right. Yeah, they have the display on there. Uh, but and then they th- did it in Guardians Two with um, um, Russell Kurt Russell. Cro- Kurt Kurt Russell. Russell. Jeez, I said Russell Crowe. Um, <laughs> and well, they've done it with uh, Jeff Bridges before, and I think tr- if we go back ten years. Tron, oh, Tron Legacy. I does just it. watched that video. Yeah, Corridor Crew. Yeah. One did it. <laughs> Oh, I look <laughs> that rough. was not good. <laughs> um, but I think now it's definitely got to a point of borderline photorealism, which is insane. Um, Captain America at the end of Endgame is pretty, pretty amazing. Yeah, I at. think that was a, more makeup than usual. Like yeah. ratio between makeup and digital, I think there was more makeup in there than and usual. And as I said to you, I think um, Scorsese is one of those people that it's definitely. Do- I mean. He's actually been doing it like you've only just recently watched Raging Bull and I yeah. watched it uh, at the start of the year and that is set over, I think, 20 or 30 years too. Yeah, and that was a sh- when I first watched that, I was shocked. as a wow, the transformation De Niro goes through is awesome and we get a very similar thing in this yeah, film too. Yeah, and I, I think De Niro is always, like I said to you, he has a relatively old face, so... <laughs> um, 
so the cast, and particularly, um, I've just searched up Goodfellas is 1990, and I will be referring to Goodfellas a little bit in in this talk. Yeah, um, which is fair enough, I imagine. I think it is, <laughs> is quite fair. Um, but uh, yeah, I think he, I think De Niro's like in his 70s now. I think all three of the main characters are in their 70s now, which is right between another, Pesci and, and Pesci Pacino. And Pacino, um, but. I think he does pretty well with the de-aging, and then they jump relatively quickly to the 60s slash 70s, where mm-hmm. basically I'm pretty sure they just did a bit of makeup and darkened his hair, and it looks fine. It yeah. looks like what he used to look like in Goodfellas, to be honest. He doesn't look that much age difference in the 30 years between the two films, which yeah. is insane. But I, I, the only the only film I've seen with De Niro in it where I was like, wow, like he looks really like noticeably younger was um, Taxi Driver. It's the only film I've seen of his work. Yeah, like, and oh, that's wow, like seventies. Yeah, exactly. So, like, so um, that I mean, that plays seventy six De Niro. Jeez, yeah. So that plays into my perception of I think it looks good because I'm not horribly familiar with what he he looked like on a consistent basis in his twenties and thirties and so on. Um, but I thought it was excellent. I believe they actually used three lenses across nine cameras at certain times to make that work from time to time. Or oh, like his aging. Yeah, I think to to work with the effects and stuff, I think they would use... I guess it was also to speed up the production. They would have nine cameras on at times to record scenes, and some of them would have up to three lenses at one point to to adjust for that. Mm -hmm. So that's kind of interesting. It worked really well. Like I said, they didn't focus too much on the 50s time, and when they did, they actually did a pretty good job of uh, hiding uh, De Niro's age with even Mm -hmm. the shots they used. They kept it relatively, like, either quite wide. Like, if you notice, like, a lot of the closer, closer up shots come later in the film. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, so I've just checked all three ages. Do you want to take the guess of the three leads? Oh, Joe Pesci, Al Pacino, guess. Just, and just, Robert De Niro. Sir, just tell me. I'm not I'm not guessing De Niro right now. is 76, <laughs> Pesci is 76, and Pacino is 79. Wow. Um, I thought these, that makes sense. all three of these guys were in their early 70s, but boy, they are actually in their late 70s. Um, this is a crazy old cast. <laughs> um, well, you know, it, go, it goes back to Scorsese saying that he has some unfinished business with this crew, and especially De Niro, and I feel this film is such a, maybe not a homage, but it does feel like a spiritual successor to his earlier gangster films. Absolutely. Goodfellas in particular with Pesci and De Niro. I think it's been like 24 years since Casino, which yes. would have been their last sort of collaboration. Yeah. So um, Casino was 95 and Goodfellas is 90. So keep right, that in okay. And I think this film kind of taps between the two. So the two styles. In Casino, it's a little yeah. bit slower um, compared to Goodfellas, but this one definitely ramps in pace and then slows down in other parts. Right, right, right. We're going to talk about a bit, but I um, I'd really like to address that, and it's already getting talks about this, but... Mm. Um, people are already sort of throwing the same sort of unforgiven vibe with the Western genre as they are with the gangster movie genre. And this okay. being the the last hurrah of the gangster film franchise. I, I could see it. It feels like it. It feels like there's a self-awareness to it. Yeah. Which I, mean, I think you mentioned to me last night. I did. I did. Obviously with the ages of the characters and the journey being over 50 years. And for the first time ever, um, in particular with... Uh, uh, definitely my comparison to Goodfellas to this one. Uh, we're following the whole life of a yeah. gangster. We're not, and we're seeing the fallout from on an exterior level where Scorsese's obviously been talked about for being, you know, very focused on his male characters, kind of neglecting mm. his female leads. 
And um, in this one, I think the female characters obviously don't get a full front seat, but they get more. And Mm. I think particularly the thing I really enjoyed about this film is the integration of the family aspect and the fallout of their relationships with their children, who often a lot of these gangsters had children. like. And well, full full on families, yeah. I think this calls into question the age of Scorsese when he made films like Goodfellas compared to now. He's also seventy six, so when he made Goodfellas thirty years ago, he was in his mid forties. Mm-hmm. Which put that in perspective. That's um, and we as filmmakers are constantly changing the way we act and present in front of the camera depending on our age. So I think, but it's also a social climate thing as well. Yeah, like how how aware is the audience of these of these kinds of things? Yeah, absolutely. But, um, not that I think Scott says he gives much of a fuck. No, I don't <laughs> think so. From that point of view. Well, I mean, what, like not six, seven years ago was Wolf of Wall Street. Yeah, so. exactly. Um, Which still holds up very well. It does. It's a film I still go back to every once, once a year at yeah. least. Well, it's, and, it's interesting you bring up that because there is a certain, um, we won't get too much into it just yet, but there is, there is a certain, uh, you know, obviously we see the relationship between De Niro and his family. I think there's a very particular mm-hmm. one with, with one of his daughters, uh, who seems to be a little more, uh, you know, as a child is a bit more wide-eyed to the activities surrounding the family. And I honestly, I wish it went. Uh, you, I know you disagree with me. I wish it went a little further. I feel like there mm-hmm. was not as much closure as I would have liked in that. Okay, and I mean, I counted it with by saying that I think the closure is what we would have expected mm. and what we craved, and the fact that we didn't get given it was a deliberate choice, and also more satisfying because it left us wanting that ending and the fact is this definitely feels like the most grounded of his gangster films um and definitely the most real and the fact that uh the relationship between them became severed Mm. um and that it never healed or it never got the the confrontation that we thought was going to happen is more real because people stop speaking to each other in in life family stop speaking to each other and Sometimes there's never going to be a fight. It's just that's the end of the relationship between yeah. A and B. And I think... <laughs> A and B. No, it's true. It's absolutely true. So I think um, I really... I actually really enjoyed this film. Um, I enjoyed it for a different reason than I've enjoyed his other gangster films. Okay. Um, In what what specifically? Um, obviously, the, uh, the age of the three actors lends to... Um, as many challenges as it does uh, uh, benefits. So... Like experience? Well, yeah, they they physically can't do as much. Like, all three of these guys are in their mid to late 70s, so physically they're even hindered to do, uh, like... like, A lot of physical work. I mean, for the most part, every time, for example, uh, De Niro kills someone, he's not, like physically doing too much. Normally he just goes up to someone's head and just pops it and yeah. pops it in the snout and then keeps walking. I mean, I wouldn't expect him to do like backflips though. <laughs> well, he's shooting but this people. is what I mean. It, <laughs> yeah, the I challenge of having three older guys in uh, your leads okay, actually leads to a benefit. Right. Because it leads to, we get to really see the characters behind all three characters. Whereas De Niro in, in Goodfellas, although like they don't do a lot of physicality, there's definitely more movement and more doing so. And then things like Taxi Driver and stuff like when we go yeah, way absolutely, yeah. Raging Bull when he's a boxer. I mean, it's like he's not, he's, and it's not obvious, it's just he's old. I mm-hmm. mean, that's, and, but at the same time, it lends to the fact that 
the all three of these guys had amazing chemistry on screen, particularly oh, De Niro incredible. as the middleman between Pacino and Pesci. Yeah, it's yeah. Like he is phenomenal. And I said to you when I walked out, I was like, this feels like for all four of these like leading men, for the three lead actors and the director, and, and yeah. the director this feels like it's their last real Holly, uh, Hollywood Oscar Hail mm. Mary throw. Like, can I see Pesci or can I see Pacino or De Niro being in something as good as this ever again? I mean, you've got your Dunkin' Donuts Jack and Jill part two. And you've got Dirty Grandpa <laughs> part two, right? And I don't even know. Like, I even said to you, I can't even remember what Joe Pesci was in uh, right, right, before right. this film. Like, what was the last thing he did? And I'm just quick. I'll quickly fact check well, it right now. But. I do agree. I think I think the three performances are phenomenal across the board. Mm-hmm. Like, and you're right. There's such great chemistry because they've got such great history together as well. Um, I thought I thought Joe Pesci, especially, was fucking really good in this film. Oh yeah, like just so natural. But it's funny because when when I watched him in um Raging Bull, I I got a sense that he was kind of on the lower tier. He was always the one sort of being undermined by De Niro. And at this mm-hmm. point, I feel like the table's flipped. He's always the guy who's actually, you know, despite his physical presence, he's, I'm guessing he's quite short, but he's got that demeanor and he really nails it. And I was like, man, this is a very impressive performance. But I mean, by all three of them, what, what you're smiling. What, what did you find so out? So the last, so Pesci, his last film was in 2015. <laughs> it's called A Warrior's Tale. I have no clue what that is. I think I've heard of it, actually. Love Ranch was before that. That doesn't sound good. I'm not going to lie. Ranch, baby, prove me if I'm wrong. Ranch. And then The Good Shepherd, and then he hadn't made a film after... Two, prior to 2006, he hadn't made a film since 98. So he really has been very sporadic in the last two decades right. for film. And we've we've made the Jack and Jill joke, and we've made the Dirty Grandpa <laughs> joke. The fact of the matter is these three guys not had a very eventful last decade right. in terms of good films. And that's not saying they are not superb actors. They are. I mean, I can name three or four films off the top of my head for each of these guys that they're amazing in. It's just, they just, the problem is, and this is also uh, a comment on the Hollywood system, is for the most part, when actors get old, it's very much like an, another minority that's not being, a marginalised group that is not being addressed. They mm-hmm. get thrown away, most of them. You know? Well, the careers um, end, and you I, know. They've touched, there's been a couple of like various things, but they don't, their careers don't end, their opportunities dry up. And yeah, because, well, the opportunities dry up, which leads to the Well, they get people ending. like Gary Oldman, who's in his 50s, to play someone who's older than him playing Winston Churchill. I mean, right, like, yeah. the thing is, it's like there were, there could have been older people that could have taken that opportunity, talented actors, that, and that there's a commentary on that. People like Meryl Streep take roles of 70-year-old women when you've got people like Maggie Smith who are in their 70s, you know? Right, it's, yeah. It's like just because they're the, the the big names. And, I mean, I'm not saying these guys weren't big names. Once upon a time, they probably mm. took opportunities from old people when they were in their 40s or 50s. But this is the the, the constant problem, you yeah. know? But, I, I mean, it goes back to that argument of, like, you know, is Scarlett Johansson allowed to play a transgender character because she's not transgender? And, you know, and it, and yes. that, it goes into that whole argument as well. It's a little different, though. I think age is a bit of a different one because if, if uh, they've still got the talent and they still want to work, then that's a bit different rather than playing a a like a gender orientation is a little bit different, whereas age is... I mean, as long as they're not, like, a hindrance to production or they're not, like, f- like financially viable for the production. Like, there are instances where... 
Like, you know, uh, it's just cheaper to get a younger person and put them in older makeup because they're mm. just a cheaper actor. But yeah. there's no real... I can't imagine there'd be a big price difference between someone like Meryl Streep playing a 70-year-old woman and then, like, Judy Dench, who is in her 70s. So it's Yeah, a, but, I mean, I guess it goes back to that old age. I mean, you said it's like, do they have the talent? Is Are they a better fit for that role, even if they're, you know, 10 or 20 years older? I mean, it goes back... There was this story that came out while we're talking about Scorsese with The Wolf of Wall Street. And I can't remember who the actress was, but there was someone going up for the the actor, or sorry, the the character that the Margot Robbie got the role for. Mm-hmm. And she got told she was too old to do it. And it became a big thing. Like she tried to make it a big thing of, hey, um, this was an ageist thing. Uh, how dare they? And then I remember it was a, quite a bit of, you know, that's kind of <laughs> the, the smoke puff that it turned yeah. into. But... Uh, I, I just remember thinking, like, well, that's silly. It's like, well, if she's younger and she better fits the role, mm-hmm. then, then they don't have the role. And that was her first big role as well. So Yeah. I think it's uh, it's it does swing both ways. Mm. I'm not saying it doesn't. Um, do you think three other people could have played these roles? Like, I three have, younger I, people? I wouldn't want them to because of the, the prestige of these three and the chemistry of these three. Yeah. Absolutely. So I think that's where I stand with that. And and uh, the movie wouldn't exist if these three weren't in it, I feel like. Because he wouldn't, wouldn't have done have had it. wouldn't have near as much cultural impact. Well, he wouldn't have done it without these actors. I know that. Mm. There's no way he would. He, if De Niro wasn't in it, he'd be like, well, then why am I making this movie? Yeah. So I feel that... I think that's the final bit of context for this film is the director... It didn't matter what age they were. It didn't matter who was better right for the character of Frank... It was just, I wouldn't work with these actors. Yeah. And it's very similar to the way Tarantino does it. I mean, I, I think he's a bit more open. If he can't get Leo to play this spe- specific role, he will get someone else to do it. Mm-hmm. But I think for, uh, Din- uh, not Din- I think for Scorsese in this particular yeah. movie, he just wanted these actors. He didn't really give a shit about the age. Well, I mean, tying back to the major point that I want to take from this film, mm-hmm. Jake, is I feel like for at least the three leads, I don't think I want to ever see them in another film. Like, but is that because you got such satisfaction? Absolutely. From the, well, there you go. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it's like so many times actors will just make stuff and they'll just make stuff and they'll make stuff and they'll die. But the film that they leave on is such a... It's a it's, shame. It's, it's just a disappointment. Yeah. I mean, like, we've got to think of all of the, the actors who have died prior to, like, passed away before their time. And that's a shame. And, but older actors have a tendency to just be shoveled into films because that's the, like, that's the only way they're going to make money. And then when they die, the last few films that we remember, I mean, I just listed off Pesci's last four films. None of them I've seen. None of them I really want to see. Do I like, and then I saw him yesterday and it's like, yeah, of course he can still act. I agree to that. But that, that was like. I mean, I walk, I told you as soon as we got in the car, I was like, "That's that's a supporting actor nomination, easy." I think he's definitely over. I think Pacino gets more to do, but I think Pesci is like the underdog. He's going to get the nomination for best. And supporting. I think he should. He yeah. should get a nod, and I think De Niro should get a nod, and mm. I think Pacino should be just in the conversation, no doubt. I think all three of them were superb. Yeah. But I, I mean. Finish on a high note is what I'm saying. Like enjoy, enjoy your retirement. Finish on a high note. Let us remember this film right. in years yep. to come for all four of them. Like I mean, like I said to you, it's like Scorsese seventy six. How many more films are we going to see from him? Yeah, you know, how many consistently good films are we going to see from him? Because I mean, over the th- three to four decades 
almost five decades he's been in Hollywood. Like, you don't want to tarnish that with three or four really bad films at the end of your life, you know? Like, yeah. And I think that's my major point from this film, because for the most part, yeah, I agree with those claims. I think this might be the end of the gangster genre. This will be the mm. hallmark unforgiven for this respective genre, because it does everything it needs to do and mm. leaves you really wondering, like, man, that was only three and a half, that was three and a half hours, but I didn't really feel it. Yeah, I I definitely went into the whole, the size of this film. Yes. Because, I mean, that kind of leads in perfectly from what you're saying, that this feels like the final hurrah of the genre, mm-hmm. almost. And I think part of that, you're right, is due to the size. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to throw some statistics at you. Okay. Here's some, here's some stuff that's been ticked off. The film has 309 scenes... Uh, 108 shooting days it took to make, 117 locations. Not bad, though. Three and, was that, like, four months? Just under four months of shooting? Yeah. That's not bad. bad. Consider- considering how much is going on, yeah. 117 <laughs> locations and apparently two to three moves per day. So they would move between two to three locations every day. That's insane. And, of course, the film ends up being three hours and 29 minutes long, 209 minutes long. That is... That is definitely the longest I've ever sat in a theater, ever. Yeah, and I think same. we were the only two in the theater who d- who didn't. I mean, we were fidgeting for sure, but we were definitely the only two who didn't go to the bathroom fifty times. I couldn't have watched that in Hoyt's Garden City. Oh my god! Like, and and f- just for our view, like our listeners, yeah. Hoyt's Garden City has got the crappiest seats, we're like old crappy seats. Like, thankfully, Backlot has amazing seats, um, and some of the other Hoyt's theaters have really amazing seats too. But just Garden City, which is the one we normally go to, <laughs> probably the them most. Out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Is the crappest, and I could not have sat in there for three and a half hours. That would have been a nightmare. Yeah, but well, I mean, Hoyts don't have the balls to play this movie. So. Yeah, that's fair. Yeah. <laughs> this is, it's a really good film, but um, it's a it's a monster of a film. Man. It's you know we we a few weeks ago we had Once Upon a Time in the West, which was mm-hmm. like we two fifty five something like that. Yeah, it was yeah. it was pretty. Yeah, it was two hours fifty five minutes. I'm pretty sure, and just under three and. We talked about that film being like a, it felt like a, an just epic. A, an epic. Yeah. And this film feels like an epic mm, too. This totally. definitely feels like, and I think that's that's a hundred percent right. That that praise that this is that should be the end of this genre mm. because I think you know for the most part I can't think of anyone that's done gangster movies better than him. Like, I'd love to see like we have the whole noir part, but they weren't necessarily gangster movies, noir right. films. A lot of them are mystery dramas. I mean, there was a sub subgenre to that. Yeah, which was gangster, right. yeah. sort of Scarface original sort of stuff, but I don't know. I, I, like, think back and I'm like, there might be a few in there that he didn't do, maybe, like, The Untouchables, but, like, for the most part, it's like, when I think of a gangster movie, I think of Martin Scorsese, and mm. I think this film is, like, the quintessential compliment to you. I said to you, I was like, this almost feels like a show. Like, I almost forgot I was in a movie. Right, yeah, yeah, yeah. And I know it's a weird sort of, like... It's not an insult. It's more like because there's just the so length. many moving pieces that yep. it feels like... You really do feel the struggle that De Niro has between the family loyalty to the mob family mm. and then to his friend. Yeah. And you feel that tension. And you like both of the lead characters that he plays middleman to. You do like Pesci. And you like Pacino. Mm. They've both got their flaws as characters, but they've both also got their endearing nature. And both 
like each other, but it's one of them has ties to a higher power and one doesn't. Yeah. That was, that was essentially <laughs> the, the, the straw that broke the camel's back. I think that was the strongest part of the film was, you're right, that dynamic and the, the bouncing back. You're right, De Niro's the middleman. It's almost, we're making a joke about the passive protagonist earlier, and he's definitely not a passive protagonist in this film. No. But he's the one that's, you know, being bounced back and forth like a bowling ball, you know. He's the one that yeah. has to deal with this and ultimately has to make the decisions uh, to to solve the issues. Even though he's at the centre of the conflict, maybe he's not necessarily the initiator of the conflict. He's the yeah. one that has to solve it. And it's that decision-making that takes place over, you're right, this gigantic stretch of time. And this even... I just watched um, Living With Yourself, the Paul Rudd mm-hmm. TV show, and that show, that whole season, is shorter than this movie, which gives you an idea of the length, and that's why you Crazy. compare it to a show. Yeah, because it, the length makes sense, and the type of story we're getting is a much longer, more stretched-out story I, than we're used to. I think it's because it takes over a place of 50 years. It could almost be broken up into its time mm. periods. Totally um, could be. Um, this could easily be a three-part series or a f- four-part series. It shouldn't be. Yeah. Because I actually think, if anything, this calls back to, like, what obviously Scorsese was raised on, these bigger three-hour films that were broken into intermission sort of time-based uh, experiences. And I think it's a shame that a lot of people are going to watch this film once again on Netflix, where if they want to get up, they can just hit the pause button. Mm. Because... There is beauty in that, but then there's also, like, that's also the beauty of, of cinema and going to a cinema and watching something like this and being like, that was an experience. I could just imagine trying to load it on Netflix and the, the streaming quality's lackluster and it's just, oh, God. Yeah. Oh, like, yeah, you're getting that. a bad internet connection, so it downgrades the, the quality yep, of the image. Yep. Yeah. We, we saw, I could tell a thousand percent what we saw was a DCP, and I was like, this is a gorgeous film. Yeah. Is it? Yeah. I, I, I don't know what else to say without delving too much into spoilers, Jake. Um, I think I might throw a couple of questions at you. Okay. Um, just about some of the structural elements of the film. Mm-hmm. Um, actually, before we even do that, it's funny we compare it to, oh, it feels like a TV show. It feels like a spectacle and this kind of... Yeah. What I compared it to, and you might laugh, but I want to, exp- I want to explain myself, Zeke. I want, to, I want the people out there to know I'm not a buffoon, if you, if you, you sure? so claim. I, 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 I try to. <laughs> <laughs> so, when I was watching this, I was like, this reminds me of GTA Five a lot, specifically GTA Five. Okay, I get it. Uh, yeah. I can see it. <laughs> because here's the thing: it's like, oh, GTA gangsters. <laughs> is is and Pesci, Michael, and Pacino, Trevor? Well, pretty much. It's yeah. yeah, literally. It's first off that dynamic. It's like, wow, this feels like the dynamic. And even even the first like maybe the first act of this film of De Niro finding kind of odd jobs. I was like, oh, it's him going to his little check marker. And they got the little initial Very on the map, Franklin and yeah, and, and it was him doing this, slowly easing his way into the crime industry. Yeah, but also from just the spectacle of it, the length of it, when GTA is obviously like a 20, 30, 40 hour story, I got that same sense of how long and drawn, well, not drawn out, but like just how much story there was. Almost to tell. you don't realize how much time has passed. Yeah, exactly. And you look down, and you're like, oh, I've been sitting here for three and a half hours. Well, that, but in the sense of look how much story has been told here. Yeah. So that's kind of where my comparison came from there. I agree um, with that comparison. So some of the structural things I want to ask you about. I like the idea of Martin Scorsese just like walking past GTA 5 and being like, I have it! <laughs> I have the idea. I figured it out. Americans, Those but kids, Irish. <laughs> I'll relate to the kids. <laughs> so um, one of the things from the story point of view, obviously there's a bit of 
I don't know if I would call it rewriting of history. Let's just call it rewriting of history, mm-hmm. embedding of history sort of thing. I mean, we had this earlier this year with Tarantino. Yeah. Where his film is very much, he expects you to know what the hell's going on before you enter that theater. I felt this time I was very welcomed as someone who wasn't really, he didn't know much about Jimmy Hoffa. He didn't know too much about that, the intimacy of that. Even, obviously, I knew about Kennedy's death, you know, the yeah, president. Yeah. I knew that, of course, but like, not knowing the intricacies about it, I felt very welcomed in that film. And I want to ask if you sort of felt the same way. Um, yeah, no, I think uh, he's always done a really good job. And uh, the funniest thing with him is we often hallmark narration as a lazy narrative tool. It's a general mm. consensus that narration is the lazy man's like way of telling a story. Right. But it never feels like that with a Scorsese film. And I feel like it's because he embeds characterization really well in his dialogue. Mm. Um, and even in this situation, it's like there's... And I think he does a really good job of embedding the character of of Frank and how he tell, talks about like Jimmy Hoffa and the time and yep, the yep, world yep. around him. And that makes us always feel invited. And if you watch Goodfellas, Jake, it's a very similar situation where, like, you don't really know anything about the world, but the world gets explained to you enough, so you do, you're right. aware of the so situation. so it feels natural sort of thing. Yeah. And, Sweet. of course, yeah, I definitely did. I think Tarantino has a slightly different style, very much like... like well, he, with he wants something. you to know what's happening. Yeah, it's almost like he wants you to go and look up the incident beforehand yeah. or... Or necessarily, actually, I think with Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, he wants you to look it up after you've watched the film. Mm, which is what I did. Um, knowing, because then obviously the alternate ending in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood where she doesn't die. Right. Um, is, you know, it's sort of a play on history. Whereas I don't th- think, I think this is all pretty accurate. Yeah. Well, I think the clever thing, and this doesn't spoil the film, mm-hmm. well, we're getting the spoilers soon, that he t- he talks about Jimmy Hoffa and how. Uh, before we introduce to him as a character in the film, the VO of of him in his eighties, you know, talking to the audience, he talks about Jimmy Hoffa and how like, oh, you know, kids they wouldn't know him. They might know him as the guy who disappeared that one time. Yeah. And that is the perfect plan of someone who doesn't know who Jimmy Hoffa is, but that's all you need to know before being introduced in the character. So now you're anticipating through the film, oh well why does he become the disappeared person? Yeah. And I thought that was a very clever way to get you into the narrative it's ahead even, of it. Sort it's of even little things like um, when they introduce a different mafia character oh, and then yeah. they do a freeze frame and <laughs> yeah. say how they died. Yeah, this little and text bubble. Like a little text bubble. And it, and it helps because what it does is it's like instead of... Basically what Scorsese saying is all these guys died, and then those who didn't die died, and in, in, we find out what happens to them towards the end of the film. Right, but, yeah. Um, it's always gruesome as well. Basically what it is, is it keeps <laughs> diverting, like, basically like, oh, well, this character's in this story, but he's not important to the story. Right. I'm giving you his ending before you've even seen really what he's doing. Yeah. Because I want you to focus on the three characters that you don't know what happens to them. That's you, kind of ingenious. Yeah. I never even thought of it that way. Like, basically I'm keeping like, the vision focused on... What yeah. happens to Hoffa? Why does he become the missing man at the end of this? Or mm. what happens to you know Sheeran? What happens to what happens to you know Joe Pesci's Russ? character? Yeah. Pesci's so. character, yeah. Russ, I think I think his name's Russell. Yeah, we were struggling last night. We we're like, what's his name again? 
Is it Russ? They, they talk. There's a lot of names. There's always yeah. a lot of names. But like I said, that they do that thing where with those freeze frames, they they keep that tunnel vision. Focus on the three and the three you're supposed to focus on. Yeah, yeah. Don't worry so much about all of these other guys who are coming into the story for their part in this story, but they're not important. You right. don't have to focus on them too much. Oh, that being said, Wolf Wall Street does a very similar thing. Yeah, actually, that's a good point too. Mm. But I think now, audience. We're going to start talking about spoilers. Yeah. So we recommend... I recommend watch the film. I think it's excellent. Yes. I mean, I assume most people listening to this episode are going to be watching this film. Um, if you like... That's a good point. Goodfellas, yeah. if you like The Departed, and if you like Casino, Casino's always been one that I was always half and half on, but um, if you really like Casino, then this film slots right in, and in my opinion... The last great f- gangster film, and there should never, there will never be another one after this. This is the mm. this is the final hurrah of this genre, and the final, uh, f- I think the final frontier for uh, the final hill right. of these three leads will will hopefully, I don't want to say die on because that's how that that saying goes, but. <laughs> Retire on. Ah, sneaky, sneaky. All right, let's go cool. to spoilers. Spoilers. So, why does Jimmy Hoffa disappear, Zeke? Well, uh, Frank kills him. <gasps> um, yeah, so obviously oh, no. there's a really, and I don't want to delve too much into highlight scenes, but there's a really good three-way exchange between Hoffa, Russ, and, and Frank <laughs> at um, the wedding. I'm sorry, but you're going to say a freeway exchange between dicks and vaginas. <laughs> Jesus. <laughs> um, I actually want to touch on how like little sex- sexuality is in this. Yeah, that's a good point. Um, like which... virtually none. Was there even any nudity? No. There might have been like one picture or something. I can't remember. I'm trying to remember. That might have been like K- Killing of a Sacred Deer or this is like, like films I watched this morning. I feel like this yeah. is M. Like this is like an M. Oh, the violence is pretty. It's not that bad though. It's pretty like. Shocking, like pop, pop. I guess. I mean, that was something I pointed out. This would be a light MA, though. This would not be a. Yeah, this would not be I a. I suppose. Like, this is Goodfellas had some some shocking ones. This right, one was yeah, like. Yeah. yeah, pop, pop violence, but it wasn't like. I, was, oh, I, don't well, know. I mentioned it to you last night about the violence. Yeah, it's very quick and instantaneous, and yeah, pop, pop, pop. You know, people just die, and there's loud bangs, and that's it. And I, yeah. I liked that it kind of. It, it hinted at the passiveness his character that Frank has towards yeah. killing people. He just He just does it. You know, and even um, even the but lawyer, not, even uh, um, it, what's his name? Uh, um, well, Ray Raymond, Romano. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Even he just he just gets popped in the face and dies towards the end. Does he? I'm pretty sure that's him. What the one on the sidewalk? Yeah. No, nah. that's not him. No, looked like him. He dies. He just dies off screen. Ray Romano. Ah, that sucks. That's, the, that that's the whole joke when the FBI come up and he's like, "Oh, just uh, I guess by that lawyer, makes more like, sense." I thought that was died. him fucking with him though. Nah. Oh, okay, that no, that sense. was the other dude who was at the house when oh, the one right, in the car yeah, with yeah, the yeah. fish conversation. That dude. Ugh, that scene. But anyway. Yeah, <laughs> yeah we've talked about how like, we can quickly touch on that. There's an yeah. exchange between Jesse Plemons, yeah. the other dude. Oh, Jesse Plemons, you, dude, you're just useless in this film. Sorry. <laughs> I feel so one, bad. It's the one scene like, you got to talk in. I'm sorry. I feel bad because it's like I really like Jesse Plemons yeah. too. Um, but Jesus Christ, he's like, like. Everyone was bashing him for El Camino, and and, and in this film, he oh, literally has shaming. nothing to do. Like, I'm sorry, bro. He buys a fish. Apparently. That's and the only I, unnecessary yeah, scene. Yeah, I, I agree with you there. That's 
out of three and a half hours, that's literally the only scene I would be like... Cut that out. So it'd be three hours and 25 minutes. Yeah. Because, <laughs> well, here's the thing, because it even goes before that. It even goes the fact that Frank, when he's calling, you know, Al Pacino, he calls him, he goes to the phone booth twice to set up the same meeting. Yeah. And I was like, we don't need this. Even yeah. just that first phone call's fine. And then all the build... I guess, you know, they're building up to his death. Yeah. They're going back and forth. This fish conversation, the car, and it literally passes the same turn off like three, four times. It's the same shot they use. Mm-hmm. They just have the car going back and forth and they cut it in between. Like, I that's the only thing from a pacing point of view, from a time yeah, point a of view. It's like, why is this here? It doesn't build tension. We've already got the tension. Yeah, we had enough. You said it to me long before those scenes took place. That, oh, here we go. Here we go. Shit's mm. about to get real. And then all that happens. And I was like, oh, okay. Yeah. It was a, probably could get rid of about 15 minutes there. Yeah. Probably between all of that and build up. I think as soon as he gets on the plane, that's where, like... Right. That's, that that's can... enough. We've, yeah. We've hit it up. Mate, the first drive-by he does to the house, I like, because it almost is offering, is he going to go tell him about what's about to happen? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I like that first drive-by. Um, and when he gets to the house, and then when he pulls up, I liked that. It's just the fish, like, the dialogue and the yeah, cutting. Yeah, I think what, anything in the cutting floor, it all starts with the fish. <laughs> yeah. It starts with the fish. Um, uh, but I, yeah. Um, you know what was interesting, though, I wanted to point out, um, was that when I'm watching this film... I got a sense it was very montage heavy and it goes into De Niro's voiceover and mm-hmm. very cut, 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 cut. And it's a very fast paced film for most of yeah. it, I would say. But it got to the point where there was so much montage, montage, montage of things happening, them doing this, them doing that. And I was like, I kind of missed the part where they just had scenes. And there were definitely scenes, especially in the third act, yeah. when things start to ramp down and De Niro becomes alone. I think it's a good way of passaging time. We've got we to gotta account the fact yeah. this is set over 50 years, so it's pretty hard to uh, explain big passages of time without, like, a montage. Yeah, so I yeah. guess I'm pretty used to that with his gangster picks. Yeah, like, and even um, Wolf of Wall Street does it a lot as well. Yeah, it's uh, it's his yeah. way of passaging time. Thankfully, in Wolf of Wall Street, there's only what five, six years that pass. Yeah, it's not as crazy. Um, and Goodfellas, I think it's twenty. Mm. So, and Departed is only two years or something, two or three yeah, years. It's yeah. not big. Uh, I d- I just thought it was interesting because I noticed it. I was like, man, this is a lot of months. Like, I want some scenes. And again, we get them towards the end. Things start yeah. slowing down. It's like, okay, now we have a scene with characters just talking and this and that. And now we have a scene. Which is ironic because that's the only part of the pacing we actually didn't like. Yeah, was when it decided to just be a bunch of scenes. Yeah, it's and, true. Uh, Sometimes I found myself a little confused in the first act, particularly with a lot of the explanation dialogue. Normally, it's pretty easy to follow, but I think De Niro's right. accent sometimes was a little thick <laughs> that I couldn't quite understand it. Oh no, not his fault. But yeah, it was a little bit like what's happening, and in the union stuff is a little confusing for. People like it's not a big talking Us point in, in in Australia, so it was a little confusing, right. but still managed to keep up with it. Yeah, um, oh, I think the the bit I really want to dwell into is probably the, the latter parts of this film because I don't think there's a lot of points in talking about the early parts and spoiling those because there's a lot of it's just building to that death, obviously. Yeah, um, and explaining all of the politics behind that is it's not really important. I think the important part is when they go to prison towards the end uh, of the film yeah, yeah, yeah. and focusing on all of the the mobsters the that, are left, that are left behind. Yeah. And particularly Pesci in this last bit is, is oh, phenomenal. Heartbreaking. Who has a stroke and can't use 
one half of his body, so it's definitely his acting is real peak in this point. That I told you last night, that scene specifically made me rethink my own like longevity in life. Yeah. It's like I'm 22 years old. But this is this is a, yeah, I know, but I, I think it the really best got part to about me. this is it, it focuses more on uh, people didn't just die who worked for the mob because they got killed. Mm. Some of them did make it to old age, and this is what became of them. Yeah, exactly. And that acknowledgement of and of isolation in particular for De Niro, who's left with when after his wife dies is just alone. Yeah, especially because like we alluded with the daughters earlier, the daughters yeah. hate him. They yeah. don't want anything to do with him. Yeah, they're growing up. They don't need him. So, um, and that's part mostly to do with his fault. Because um, I don't think he was selfish, but he... That, I mean, did you ever feel like De Niro's character was selfish in this film? Um, Indulgent? Because... I... No, I, would, I definitely wouldn't use the word selfish just because of even just the dynamic between the other two mm-hmm. and him trying to recoil that. I Even as a father, I wouldn't call him a selfish father. I would just say it was a bit neglectful. Yeah. You know, and that happens of a father who just... He works too much. And you can apply that to the, you know, Daniel. the blue shirts or the, you know, the, the the yellow shirts or whatever you want to call. Yeah. yeah. So, I, I, but I really like the payoff. And I know um, Peggy is the, the daughter that is really the central okay. focus of this dynamic. Yeah. Who is kind of uneasy by Pesci's presence. He's the creepy uncle, as he you said. He's really the creepy uncle. He plays it so well. Um, <laughs> who never does anything uh, like... Outwardly odd or odd weird. towards her. Yeah. But she knows he's bad for, like, a, yeah. just off a presence and an aura. And what comes around him is dishonesty and deceit. And it's mm. sort of that child feeling of, ah, I don't know what it is about you, but I don't like you. And I really yeah, like that. Yeah. That, like, Pesci is not a bad guy in this. He's just raised in this certain world and this is what he knows and he even buys her like presents for Christmas and gives yeah. like a hundred dollar bill and she can't even you know and he, he accepts it. She's like, Oh he says you know she said thanks once, that's fine. Yeah. yeah. Oh I was like, Ooh, like I you know like it always hurt him that Hoffa, who is yeah. Pacino, is the mm. good uncle. He's the working class uncle. Although he's And uh it got really creepy. I honestly was like, fuck, this could go in a really creepy place. The really? relationship with him and the daughter. I never thought about it that way. I, yeah. I was leaning over to you. I was like, oh, I don't like where this is going. No, I, I honestly I, thought it could go there. I didn't. I thought it was totally more on the fact that on the surface, he was just a more endearing, nicer. Yeah. A charming, charismatic character. If you yeah. Know. I mean, it comes back to also the nurturing thing. Pesci couldn't have kids, as he said in a very right, early yeah. scene. And... and Hoffa did have kids, they were just older. Mm. And so he already knew what it was like to be that makes sense. Uh, a father figure. And also just, I mean, just on the surface, Hoffa, although was crook behind the scenes, mm. just like every other character that we follow in this film, he did have a blue collar attitude, attitude. You know, he yeah. did. He I said shirt back- instead of collar. That's what I meant. Well, earlier. <laughs> it comes. It comes back to his obsession with his union. Yeah, it's it's the thing that he built, which you can is kind of a noble cause if you want to look at it in that way. Yeah, yeah. It is. Make he's, the unions, you know, all that stuff. Yeah, I don't know. he's but. keeping. He's looking out. He likes being a nurturing type, whereas yeah. like Pesci's character is he's kind of very, incapable of that. Well, he's or kind of, incapable. Valid. Uh, he thinks materialistic possession, whereas mm. 
um, Pacino has more an ideology, and that that could be yeah. the the combative struggle between the two: is it the idea of nurturing or the materialistic possession of nurturing? Mm. Two different. And Peggy opts with Pacino's side, but of course, she starts to figure out what De Niro does. She it kind of clicks for her almost immediately yeah. when when he disappears. She's like, "My father killed him." Yeah, you know. And of course, we have that. Oh shit! He was the one she liked. Yeah, you know. And it just. It makes sense that that's literally the final... And he says it the final day we spoke. Yeah. So that all clicks. I think the reason I thought there was going to be a creepy... Because they kind of established it earlier. He's a neglected father, but he is overprotective. He beats the crap out of that that store owner when he, yeah. when he like, quote-unquote, touches her or shoves her and he, like, throws him through the window. And it really shows his violent nature. Yeah. I love that scene so I much. Think, <laughs> I think one thing that... For, like, she clicks, and I agree to that. And what one of the other daughters addresses later is, you just weren't there. Yeah. Like, neglected, I feel like, yeah. It, neglected is right, but to say that he didn't care is wrong, I think. Because he did care, because he went and beat up that owner and I think he always was caring for providing for his family but Mm. I don't know if that explained it enough but I mean obviously it comes back to the morality question you know he could have been this blue collar guy who was fighting for the little guy but instead he was just killing people because people told him to because of his loyalty to people that they couldn't even comprehend because they weren't allowed to because he wouldn't let his daughters into that world Mm. so it's a tough, tough, the, complex tough thing. I mean, I thought it was very well done overall. Well, this film does a really good job of explaining the dynamic really well. So yeah, I thought the only, the only time I was like, Ugh, like I kind of sighed, was in the first like half an hour when he's already up to like, oh, I'm gonna cheat on her with that hot stewardess there. I was like, this is a note Scorsese's hit on enough already. I feel like yeah, the early oh, I'm gonna cheat on her I think immediately. It's true, like, but it's a true story. So I think that okay, plays into it. Um, I'm glad you mentioned true story quickly. Because this film, you may have noticed, I didn't notice this until I read it, the film, the well, The Irishman, the title, doesn't actually appear in the film. Mm-hmm. It's I Heard You Paint Houses. That's what comes up as the title mm-hmm. in the film, which I thought was very clever, because I thought that was going to be sort of our chapter one sort of segmenting like the film card. into parts. Yeah, but it actually ended up being the film title card. Yeah. So it's almost its alternate title, if you will. Crazy. I think that's a better title. I Heard You Paint Houses? Yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, it apparently it's the title of the book that this was based on. Yeah. So that may... I, I mean, they should have kept, it. kept it, it. It's a true person, so it might have been a biography, biographical mm. study of, of this, just the mafia in that time yeah. period, following this, this man that admits to killing this Hoffa guy who went missing. Yeah. So This bloody Hoffa guy. Yeah. Do you want to move into highlight scenes? Yeah, I'm happy to. It's got to be the wedding. Like, I touched on it a bit earlier, but I think that exchange between the three characters and really hitting that fever pitch boiling point and everything in that sequence felt... Not the wedding scene, beg my pardon. Um, the award ceremony, the union uh, award ceremony. So, yeah, that makes more sense. That makes more sense, yeah. Um, excuse me. Because the, there is uh, a wedding scene and there's, like, a nice slow-mo thing and... But yeah, that's that's not that. Yeah. I thought that's what you were referring to for a minute. No, sorry, beg my pardon. I was thinking about the award scene. So, Frank... Gets awarded a union commendation or something. Mm. I don't know what it something is. Something that award, Hoffa gives him, yeah. And Hoffa gives it to him. But it really plays off the dynamic between the, the mob really pressing on Hoffa, Hoffa not backing down. Mm. There's multiple exchanges between all three characters one-on-one, which I really like. Yeah. Um, Hoffa gives a 
very personal gift to Frank, and Pesci also gives another very personal gift. So we're mm. caught in that real dynamic. We see basically that scene puts up all the stakes. He's brought two dates to the bowl or the prom, basically. Basically, yeah. yeah. Um, it raises all the stakes. It raises uh, like the relationship between Hoffa and Pecky, mm. um, one of Frank's daughters. Oh, that's right, because they dance for a they moment. They dance, yeah. and whilst... So that's another clue. That's why I thought they were going with that. Yeah. Oh, well. I think it just more plays off the... It gives us a reward for all the relationships going around. Yeah, yeah. Fat Tony's relationship towards the family and how he's... It's really... It's a vendetta between Fat Tony and yeah. and and um, Hoffa and how Hoffa won't back down because he doesn't necessarily... Be- he doesn't believe in this sort of... This mob mentality, if mm-hmm. you will. Yeah. Uh, no, I. That's a really good pick. I wasn't even thinking about. It. I was like, yeah, that is. That was the scene for me that cemented the real. Okay, here we go. Like yeah. now, this is the narrative for us to keep having to make the decision. The real GTA Five, you know, yeah. death wish choice. Yeah, and will. it's really cool because it's all an exchange of separate things. It almost feels Godfather esque mm. because it's a, it's essentially it's a collection of little tidbit scenes yep. placed over a. An event. They were all kind of combinate. To, yeah, it shows to, everything. The final it shows stake. Hoffa's relationship with his wife, who's looking on next to, you know, Sheeran's wife. You know, mm. Hoffa's kids who are watching. You know, Frank's kids that are watching. Pesci and Pesci's wife. You know, it's it's it has little little bits of everything. Yeah, and it really rewards it really well. I, I really like, like that it. pick. It's a good Thank one. Thank you. Um, for me. I'm going to have to point out some of the little of the scenes. So these are ones... It's actually kind of similar to yours, how you say a lot of these little bits and pieces of this bigger scene culminate to the mm-hmm. real final stakes of the film. Um, for me, it was the little bits of, like, that's some cool little direction there. Or some interesting ideas placed. So one of them would be when Frank's selecting the two guns he has to bring with him to the job. It's very... Uh homage to taxi driver in a way yeah except of. he's working with his own sort of brain in that one he yeah. has these guns and he's he's the, it's the voiceover but it's him talking to himself figuring out all right well i can't use these guns they're too loud these are not loud enough to kind of a humorous away. but also like yeah well uh, there's a comedic take to it but it was some like oh these are actually really like it's a clever idea yeah and then it leads into a scene that you i know you loved Ooh, really when he shoots it. through the, the the diner sort of cafe i even cafe. like the pov shot of it walking up to the diner chair uh, prior yeah, to yeah. him actually doing it, it yeah. glides through the diner to where the empty table is, where the family's going to be sitting. Yeah, and yeah, I just that was a great that. little like oh plan shot. It's yeah. so clever. It's such a clever little like. It's like oh, we're envis- like it's weird. It's a visceral way of envisioning what bloody act is about to occur mm. in this this seat, and we're it's almost like. We know someone's about to die in this particular spot when looking at the yeah. spot beforehand. It's an amazing, like, little short-term foreshadow, if you mm-hmm. will. But uh, And I think on an equal stance to the gun scene, I want to shout out the scene when I think I think it's Frank's wife gets in the car, she's about to turn the key, and then she has wow. that moment of, shit, this... Because, yes. like, we're so used to it by now, these little... Bloop, bloop, bloops of explosions and death mm. of the, well, the cars explode. We're so used to it, even though the taxis, they're throwing it over the ocean. Yeah. And then they're like, no, nah, we're just going to blow the rest up. Um, and so you're so used to it at that point. And then there's a perfect little cut with no audio overlay. It just cuts to the explosion, but a different one. Yeah. And then she's fine. And she has a little side. And I'm like, that's awesome. That's pretty good. That is awesome direction. Good right short-term there. tension. Yeah. Um, I really love this one. This, might, this easily cracks my top three. Scorsese mm. films might even be my favorite. 
Yeah. I have to sit down and think about it. But this you have is to throw this good is fellas phenomenal. into there and see which one measures yeah, up. Yeah, yeah, I got I got to watch that. Yeah, <laughs> I've seen it. No worries. Well, the Irishman or uh, uh, I yeah. heard you paid houses. Uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, we'll be it, out in like three weeks. It'll be out in three weeks. <laughs> Thank you for listening to our review. Yeah, uh, sorry we spoiled it. If you haven't, <laughs> if you... I feel like we made a pretty big spo- spoiler. Spoiler no, talks we... are ending right now. There uh, you go. There's no way anyone's going to know how to no. <laughs> bypass that. True. We'll figure it out. <laughs> yeah, you figure it out, audience. Screw well, you, Jakey boy. What is new in theaters this um, week? Some interesting stuff coming out. Ford versus Ferrari. Coming out next. Uh, I'm curious. Okay. Like, yeah, it looks fun. I don't know. Uh, a real heir is Charlie's Angels, the new cast. I don't know. Is what... that Kirsten Stewart? That? I think it is. Yeah, it's crazy. I like. She's still working. <laughs> I was going to say she's still alive, but that's a little too mean. She's uh, good in Into the Wild. <laughs> yeah, it's weird. She's in that. Yeah. Um, the report, which I haven't heard anything till the other day about. So this that's is the a... three women with the fox thing. No, right? no, no, no. That's um. I think that's later on in okay. the year they're putting out. This one has Adam Driver in it. And I think it's it's like a real life spy sort of story post nine eleven. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. I I think I saw so that's a Netflix one, isn't it? I believe it is, and I mm. think it's out in the next week. Okay. So there you go. Now I got in here, this is according to Flix, Marriage Story, which we saw a trailer of last night. Um, I thought it was out in December though. Yeah, okay, so I think December 9th is the Netflix date. I think Backlot are also doing it early. I think they're doing it like the twenty first of November. So right. I'd love to go to that early screening. I don't know why Flix says it's coming out next week because I have no proof of that. Okay, it's, I'm sure it's premiered in other like Venice and stuff like that. Um, I don't sh- know how I feel about that film. I I'm like weirdly excited, but I'm like this is really good. I think that one I actually will probably wait for Netflix because it just okay to me. I'll let you know what it is, what it's like. Yeah, I might I might cop it with you. It depends. I, I this film to me it just felt very like. It's. It seems like to. It, it seems like a take it on a clean, a pr- di- clean divorce. Right. It could be a private life though. I got it that could f- be a private life under the under the hood. Yeah. I'm hearing really good things about it. Okay. We'll see. Anyway, I don't think that's out in the next week. I just wanted to mention it, but I'm pretty sure uh, the 21st you can see it a back lot. And on the 9th of December, I believe, is when you can watch it on Netflix in the comfort of your own home. Um, yeah, so just so- a quick. Note, and this mm. is a sad note on the Irishman. Budget was 160 million. Uh, that's what it's got on Wikipedia. Box yep. office gross right now is at 940 thousand. That is tragic. Yeah, but I mean, uh, yeah, I know we're gonna we could talk about it. It but, gets complicated because of the Netflix thing. But it's just like to see that film have that budget and that box office. Mm-hmm. Does that count as a flop? I again, it's tricky. Yeah, because it's all going to be on Netflix. They complicate this. Thing. That's what when you look at like private life, their their returns are horrible, but it's because it's a Netflix film. So yeah. two people saw it in a theater. <laughs> True. You know, it's it's complicated. Um, the Crown season three comes to Netflix the next week. Cool. If anyone cares about that, I'm I'm not fussed. And also uh, a couple of hours ago, so by the time you're listening to this, Rick and Morty season four is out. What? First episode uh, aired a few hours ago. By the time you're listening to Have this, you watched it? No. Okay. No, but I will watch it before next week. Only one episode. Yeah, just they're doing it weekly. Okay. There's only five episodes this season. Wasn't there a joke that it was meant to be seventy or something? Like what? No, what happened? So, uh, Adult Swim and I, I will admit defeat. I predicted that the show was just going to get cancelled after season three. Mm-hmm. That someone else might pick it up, but the Adult Swim were like, "No, we're done." I was wrong. They bought seventy episodes. So, 
no matter what happens, they are contractually obliged to make 70 more episodes of the show. But this new season only has five. And it took them two over two years to do it. So what are they going to do? You reckon they're just going to make like five get, episodes gonna, every yeah, two years? <laughs> we're going to get Rick and Morty to like 2037 at this rate. That'd be pretty funny, actually. <laughs> Maybe that's probably like... Well, Harper's like, well, at least i got some work to do. <laughs> I'm guaranteed work. It's like, you know what? It must be a part of the skeevious plan. He's like, hey, now they're forced to wait 10,000 years for me to make these episodes. Yeah, that was the thing. It's 70 episodes, but like, there's no date to which they Yeah, exactly. They just have to do... There wasn't even like a number of seasons. So they could just do whatever they want with the 70. They could do one every two years. <laughs> it looks like they might have to. They really probably did one a month. Like... Maybe. Yeah. I, I, one just, every one every six months. I'm just convinced that they're incompetent as shit, these guys. Probably just, yeah. I'm sorry. It, it took you two years to put five fucking episodes out? Are you kidding me? Right. Are you kidding me? They could be channeling it somewhere else. I mean, the fact that I don't care, really. I mean, uh, I don't know. And the, Season the three was disappointing. The longer it'll go on, the less people will care. It's like... Yeah. I mean... I found I found refuge in other shows. Yeah, well, exactly. I mean, look at look at BoJack. They had an extra few months to work on a season. They put four more episodes out within the. I yeah. guess we are waiting a little longer, but but like, look what they did with a couple of extra months. They made more episodes, yeah, but not also less. There was an ending, so yeah, but but that's my point. Why are they ending Rick and Morty? They yeah. can't even make an episode to save their lives but now. The, the fact of the matter is, if, if this is the recurring formula, people aren't going to come back to watch yeah. five well, you episodes. You were surprised. I told you the episode one's out. And you were like, what? Yeah. You had no clue. There was a time where you could walk down the street and not see a Rick and Morty shirt. Exactly. Now it's like, yeah, you see one every now and again. But I got one in my, in my closet. Normally, some net beard it wearing it. <laughs> I went to Macca's early today and I, I saw these two mates. I don't want to. Sh- I don't want to call them out, but... They both had equally the worst facial hair I've ever seen on a human being. Even worse than me. Damn. And it was both of them together. And I was like, get your shit together, guys. Well, Shave it. Facial hair on a side note. Jake, <laughs> what are we watching next week? <laughs> Here on the Cinema Shit Show podcast. Uh, next week, we're watching Animal Kingdom. Everything reaches and understand. Things survive because they're strong. You may think that you're... One of the strong creatures. But you're not. You're one of the weak ones. But you've survived because you've been protected by the strong. But they're not strong anymore. After his mother's death, a teen, Joshua, moves in with his uncles and grandmother. Joshua's life takes a threatening twist when he learns that his new family is a mid-level crime syndicate. This is an Australian film. Well, we haven't done a lot of those. I know, it's crazy. I'm really excited for this. This film got, like, Oscar bars when it came out. Ooh, I'm pretty sure. Cool. Might have even been nominated. And I think this is hallmarked as the best Australian film of the last 10, Whoa. 15 years. That's pretty crazy. I really like it. Yeah, well, I was going to say, you've been, you've been, this is probably the, the longest it took for you to get a film on the show yes. ever. Like, in terms of films that we've both, like, oh, I want to do this one day, I want to mm-hmm. do this, this is probably the one that took you the longest to finally get it on the plate. But we got it. <laughs> to do it for 44. And it's a, it's an exciting episode next week. So, you're a big fan, I haven't seen it yet. Yes. Uh, this is going to be new for me. I'm 22 Fresh. next week. Yeah, It's my yeah. birthday podcast, Look, so we, I get this for my birthday. Yeah, we both get birthday podcasts this year. Yeah. I got I got Detective Pikachu. 
that's not a bad one. Uh, yeah, yeah. I like and you, and you got you got Animal Kingdom. So yeah, you can. that's cool. Well, thank you for joining us for the Cinema Sideshow Podcast. Mm. I was Zeke. I was Jake. We'll catch you next week with Animal Kingdom. <laughs>